This is Ashen Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. If you've ever felt burned out and frustrated, or maybe you've questioned if you could stay in your position another 20 years or maybe even another day, you're not alone, and this episode is for you. Today on Ashen Voices, we're going to hear stories from SLPs who, for one reason or another, decided to make a big change in their career. Call it a leap of faith. Where they ended up are places they never would have predicted. Here are the moments that changed everything. It's the unexpected places our careers take us on Asha Voices. Support for Asha Voices comes from the Hannon Center. If you work with young children and their families, much of your work involves engaging parents. The Hannon Center specializes in making this crucial part of your job easier. Learn more at hannon.org voices. We're going to hear two separate stories from SLPs who started their careers as clinicians. But through the twists and turns of life, they landed somewhere else. This is the first of two episodes featuring SLPs discussing the unexpected places their careers took them. Look for episode two soon. My name is Kristen King, and my unexpected journey led me into the world of industry and still working as a speech-language pathologist. Kristen is the Vice President of Clinical Education and Research with Passy Muir. You may know Passy Muir for its medical products, specifically their widely used valve. If you're wondering how Kristen found her way to work in business or industry, as she calls it, you're not alone. Kristen says there's one question she hears a lot. What frequently happens is, especially on social media, I'll get questions from people asking me how I got my current position. When they ask that question, I kind of launch into my history with um, being a speech pathologist, but it is a little unusual to work in industry. It was a very circuitous route to get to where I am today, but it was kind of unexpected also. This is a story that starts with the tug of burnout, and if that sounds familiar to you, pay attention. You may want to take note of Kristen's story. It's a story that starts in a trauma center in North Carolina. That's where Kristen was working as a clinician, a clinician who, she says, loved her job and the setting. It was really a, a great opportunity, but I found myself after about five years feeling sort of burnt out, and I didn't know if it was the profession or if it was where I was working or you know what was going on, and and about year in year six, I finally decided I had to make a change or I was going to kind of combust or something. I didn't quite know what was going on. And so I looked for other jobs and I changed to another hospital that was also a level one trauma center. I was only there for about a year and a half because then I realized that it was not the location and it wasn't really the job because I loved what I did but there just was something about it that wasn't clicking for me and I was still feeling burnout. Can I ask you, what kind of symptoms of burnout were you exhibiting? What did you feel at that time? Oh, that's a good question. I felt my frustration level was higher. Like I I kind of had a trigger response to things. I wasn't angry or anything, but I just felt more on edge and things bothered me more than they used to bother me. And actually one of the biggest frustrations in the job was I kept asking myself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Like, And I don't mean like, why am I a speech pathologist? But there would be something like, say, for cognitive therapy, because that was a big area for me was brain injury and cognitive therapy. But when I would say like, why do I do this particular thing? therapy method. I couldn't find an answer. (laughs) I would ask my colleagues and they'd be like, oh, we just, that's how we've always done it. And I couldn't find answers in the literature and that bothered me. 
And that was when I really started getting frustrated with my role and my position. You're searching for more depth, it sounds like. Yeah, and, under, and kind of an understanding of, of what I was doing and how to pick what I would do, like how I would know what therapy is going to work. Where did that lead you? When I went after the second hospital and I still had those same questions, I actually called my mentor for my thesis, Dr. Monica Hogue, and I said, I'm really having a hard time here. I said, I'm not happy with what I'm doing. I'm not answering my questions. I can't get what I need. And so she agreed to meet me for lunch and she asked me a series of questions almost yes, no questions. It was things like, do you like seeing patients? And I was like, yes, I love it. But by the end of it, she looked at me and she said, well, she goes, it really sounds like you need to be in research and maybe some teaching. And she said, and that would mean a PhD. And she said, have you thought about it? And I said, no. And we talked a little longer. And by the end of that lunch, I had decided I was going to pursue my PhD. At the end of a lunch? (laughs) At the end of the lunch. I can't choose between super salad. How did you decide to make this this career change? There were several things that made it fit. One, like I said, it just felt right because I felt like I'd be able to answer my questions. And also because I had worked with Dr. Hogue before and she had happened to have an opening and she said, look, we could actually start you in August if you wanted to come back um, to our program and you know work with me again. And I loved working with her the first time and So it all just kind of fell into place. And that's how frustrated, I guess you could say I was in my, not in the position that I was in or the hospital, but just in my personal place as a speech pathologist. I was very frustrated. And so it just, all of it kind of just pushed me and I said, yes, let's do it. And so that August, I started my PhD. Was that scary? Yes, because I had to give up a job and an income and I went back to school full time and I had not planned ahead, so I didn't have savings and things, you know, set up to put myself in that position. So I continued to work almost full-time while I was in a full-time PhD program. So it was a struggle. As a clinician? As a clinician, yes. I continued to work. Yeah, I went back to the first hospital I worked at and worked for them half-time and outpatient. And I also was able to work in the school system. It was two days a week. And I did evaluations for a local county school system. And so I was working probably about 30 hours a week, plus getting my PhD full time. Kristen says those years were exhausting, but rewarding. Her focus was on traumatic brain injuries, and she was able to link her practice and research. When she graduated, she stayed with higher education and began teaching at University of Tennessee. Kristen says she enjoyed her research. She enjoyed teaching. And then, after about seven years, she started to have questions. Again, oddly, even though I loved it that much, I started getting this question of, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing what I want to do? you know, for the next until retirement, you know, or, or whatever, but I wasn't changing or, or doing anything at the time. I was just, you know, had these little question marks of what I should do next. And that's when Kristen received a phone call that changed everything. Yeah, it was, um, I, I even remember it was a Wednesday night and I was just sitting at home. My phone rang. I didn't know who it was from. It was a 949 area code. But I answered the phone and he introduced himself. President, he's uh, was president of Passimir, and he said, "I wanted to reach out to you." He said, "Your name was given to me as someone who might be a good person to bring on board with us." And I was like, "I'm not sure why." 
<laughs> and, you know, because my area was traumatic brain injury primarily. I mean, I did teach medical speech pathology courses. I'd worked with trach and vent patients my entire clinical career. But from an academic standpoint, it was not my focus. And he said, well, we've been told you might be someone of interest that we really need to talk to. And he told me that they do a lot of teaching and they have some research involvement. And he said, and that's, we're really looking for someone with a PhD who could help us out on the research side of things. And, and I said, well, I've really never thought about this and I don't really know what you do. He said, I mean, I knew the valve, don't get me wrong. I, I knew the valve, I'd used it with patients, but I meant so far as like what the company did. And he said, well, he said, we have a seminar going on this coming weekend in Florida. Could you fly out Friday and see what we do? And I went, oh, sure, why not? That was Wednesday night he called, and on Friday I was on a plane, flew to Florida to see what they taught and how they did their seminars. And I loved it. And at the ASHA convention, they came and saw my talks. I happened to have three talks that year. And he and a couple of other members of the company came and watched my talks and then talked with me more about the position. And so I decided to take a leap and try something new. And so in January of 2016, I resigned from the University of Tennessee and went on board with Passy Muir. As vice president of clinical education and research at Passy Muir, Kristen says she has a broad range of responsibilities, all related to speech-language pathology. Among her duties, she oversees educational programming like webinars and on-site seminars. She edits the business's publications, and she has to stay up to date on trachs, vents, and speaking valves. Kristen's path is interesting because it shifts from a medical setting to higher education to the world of business. Initially, as a speech pathologist, I was all clinical, working in a you know, acute care hospital, and I was very patient-oriented. When I transitioned to academia, I became very student-oriented, and that bothered me for quite a while that I wasn't seeing patients, that I didn't have that connection, that direct connection to patients. But then I realized I was training the next speech pathologist who were going to go out and work with those patients, so I was doing what I could to best prepare them to be the speech pathologist for them that I no longer could be, if that makes sense. And then when I transitioned to Passy Muir, I lost the student contact, but I now train professionals and students sometimes also um, participate in our education. So I still see that same kind of role to help enhance what current speech language pathologists are doing, you know, and to enhance their knowledge and their skills with their patients. We provide clinical support through like tech calls and things. So I've worked with patients that way. We go into hospitals and and medical facilities of various types and provide, you know, hands-on training. And, And so I haven't totally lost that patient connection, but now I'm more on that side of the student teacher type of relationship with people more so than with patients. Anything else that you want to reflect on or mention? The only thing I would say is transition can be hard. You know, change can be very hard, but we also have to be kind of open to opportunities. And if I hadn't been, I wouldn't be where I am today, which was never in my vision. <laughs> you know, I just had not looked at industry or companies, and I didn't even know that was a possibility. When I started out in the master's program, I thought speech pathologists were in the schools. 
Then in the master's programs, I learned, well, they're also medical. And then I went the medical route. And then I learned, you know, oh, we can be a professor. And then I learned, oh, we can work in industry. And so there's a lot of opportunities that speech language pathologists can have. Our profession, I think, is so much broader and the impact we can have is so much broader than what we might initially think that we need to be open to opportunities. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up, we hear another story of an SLP whose career takes them somewhere unexpected. This time, it's into an executive level leadership position at the beginning of the pandemic. Support for Asha Voices comes from the Hannon Center. If you're an SLP in early intervention, it may be daunting to determine the best way to involve parents. How do we help parents understand their role? What tools do we use to engage them effectively? How do we coach them so they're successful in applying what they learn? Hannon's online workshops have the tools you need to make parent-led intervention work. Visit hannon.org voices to learn more. I'm Suzanne Coyle, and the unexpected place that my career took me was to become the executive director of Stroke Comeback Center. I never expected to be in this kind of position. Um, And when I used to think about the leadership opportunities within the hospital rehab company that I worked for, I always said, I don't ever want to be the boss. (laughs) You know, I never wanted to, to climb up the ladder. And so I could not be more surprised that I'm in this position today. The Stroke Comeback Center is a nonprofit organization that provides support and community for those who have had strokes. Suzanne says she first discovered the center while she was working in an outpatient rehab facility. Over time, she became increasingly involved with the center. Eventually, she was splitting her time between working at the rehab facility and working at the Stroke Comeback Center, where she organized groups to support people with aphasia. As time went on then, it became known that our founder and our executive director at Stroke Comeback was planning for her retirement. So I started thinking about where that could potentially take my career. And as a speech-language pathologist, every time I was faced with a new client population or a new treatment that I didn't know as much about, I would turn to CEs. And so I did the same with this. And so I started to learn more about what nonprofit management involves and took a certificate class uh, through Georgetown University in nonprofit management. And then I threw my hat in the ring once there was an open search for a new executive director. And then here I am. I asked Suzanne what made her consider making such a significant shift in her career, a shift away from her clinical role at the rehab facility and into an executive level leadership position. What really made me start thinking about it is I loved the clinical work. I love the patients. I love the the challenges that come with it. I love the personal relationships that you develop when working with, with a wide variety of patient populations that we see in outpatient rehab. But I also started thinking it's really hard, the grind of seeing patients on the hour, every hour, seven patients a day. I just started thinking that it would be hard to see myself retiring from my career, still doing that daily grind of the pressures of that, of continued outpatient rehab. And so that's what made me start thinking about something else. And I really liked the the flexibility that I had between balancing the two jobs. 
at the same time, it was also really hard to continue having my feet in two different worlds. This kind of focused my career path because I had the opportunity to continue to use my clinical background and my clinical history and my love of working with people with aphasia, but also move my career in a different direction. Obviously, you have the professional background and the experience with the organization, but have you found other skills from being an SLP translate into your role as executive director? Yes, absolutely. First and foremost, it allows me to speak passionately about the mission of the organization. And that's so important for fundraising, for recruitment of new members, for having people understand what we do as an organization. But also some of the things that my new role has is a lot of external communications, marketing. I do the social media for the organization. And all of my experiences as a speech-language pathologist and talking with people with communication disorders requires you to communicate very clearly. And of course, those same messages are important when communicating really clearly for your marketing efforts or for your social media. So that is something that I definitely have taken with me. Also, just being able to communicate a message to a wide variety of listeners. We never know who's on the other end of our emails and our social media and our newsletters and everything else that we put out. So just being able to produce messages that are clean and easy to read and easy to comprehend um, is really important in this role that I have now. Now that you're executive director, has it changed the way you view the responsibilities of leadership from when you were a clinician? Yes, yes. You know, we've all been in positions where we had wonderful leaders and I'll say less supportive leaders. So (laughs) I have definitely used my past history to think about, well, what kind of, what kind of leader do I want to be for my clinical team, our clinical team here? So that is something that I, I do think about a lot. And it's, it's a lot of responsibility. What else has surprised you about this career transition? Well, I knew there would be a lot to learn, but I guess I didn't really keep track of how hard it is to learn new things. I've now been with this organization for a full year in this leadership role. And so I kind of feel like I've seen everything once, but there was an overwhelming amount of information to learn about the logistics of things, all the financial accounts and what it takes to go through an audit and the taxes and, you know, all the fundraising, not just the fundraising events, but the fundraising rules and how, you know, you would classify your different donations for different reasons. And it's, I just felt like every day for the last year, I've learned something new, which is wonderful. And that was what I always loved about my clinical career, but it's also really tiring. (laughs) When Suzanne filled the role, it was May of 2020. And so in her new position, she was confronting challenges spurred by the pandemic. I mean, I knew it would be challenging, but I didn't anticipate doing it from a home office and all the challenges that we've all faced with the virtual world over the past year. Mm-hmm. You, you're also probably in a position where you're making difficult decisions related to the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have been operating completely virtually since March of 2020. We quickly moved all of our programs onto Zoom. We gave ourselves one week to move everything to a virtual platform. In that first week, we trained 80 stroke survivors and our clinical team how to to operate Zoom, keeping in mind that 
in March of 2020, most of us hadn't been on Zoom. And this is also a population where you can't just say, I'm going to go to the app store, download this app, I'm going to email you a link and you click it. I mean, so it was a lot of handholding. And it's been very, very successful. And it's grown and it's thrived and it's really exceeded expectations. But now we're at the point that we're getting ready to transition back to in-person programs. And there are a lot of decisions that go along with that. As of today in Virginia, we have no longer have any pandemic restrictions related to crowd size or in-person gatherings. And it would be nice to just throw up in our doors and say, okay, everybody come back. We're just going to pretend like it's February of 2020 before we had to worry about any of this. But we also know that we have, you know, we have a fragile population here that have a lot of health risks and comorbidities. And we have to be very cautious about how we do that and very thoughtful about how we resume our in-person programs. And fortunately, I have a good team of people that are going to help make those decisions, but they're really important decisions for the longevity of the organization and for the health and safety of our population that we work with too. Is there anything else that that you wanted to mention about your career path? Just that I feel incredibly grateful that I did have this opportunity to turn my career in a new direction, but without losing my connection to my clinical role and my life as a speech language pathologist. You know, I think the the opportunities to do exactly what I do are very few and far between. And I just feel really fortunate that it happened at a time in my career and in my life that I could make that transition and be able to do it with the support of my my friends, my family, but also the team that's here at Stroke Comeback Center. Suzanne Coyle. She's the executive director of the Stroke Comeback Center and an SLP. I want to mention an ASHA resource. If you're working in healthcare, check out ASHA's online conference, Empowered SLPs in Healthcare, Breaking Barriers and Shaping Solutions. This online conference looks at the complex challenges you face while working in healthcare. As of the date this podcast is being published, the conference is happening now and continues through June 14th. You can still join and find more information. Visit asha.org events. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the Hannon Center. The best early intervention is about more than language. It's about being the bridge to those deeper connections that change families' lives and brighten children's futures. See where your career can take you at hannon.org voices. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.